Welcome to Our Data, a podcast about the public's interest in the era of big data. We explore the contours of the public's interest in the landscape of emerging database technologies. Blockchain, AI, big data, and the Internet of Things are pushing the boundaries of our imagination while challenging the ability of policymakers to respond appropriately and effectively. Join us as we talk to leading edge thinkers and doers engaged in the design, development, and regulation of these transformative database technologies with a sharp focus on how they impact the common good. This is Mike Schmitz and Ruben Youngblom with another episode of Our Data. Uh, this week, we're really excited to have the two co-founders of Profina, Paul Jerkis and Marcus Lampinen, who have both uh, on, a, on an intellectual level and then on a practical level, created some really important and breakthrough approaches and, and, and frankly, an app to, to try to deal with the question of privacy, ownership of data, and uh, how we're going to approach it in a way that puts, puts that power in the hand of the, of the individual. Um, so we're going to like just jump right into it. We had the opportunity to hear um, both of them uh, present to a, a recent Codex meeting and wanted to kind of turn it over to Marcus and to Paul uh, to kind of take us down a path of how we're going to make sure that um, uh, data privacy is protected, but also how we're going to do it in a way that's uh, mindful of all the power, the positive uh, power of having digital data out there. So this isn't this is the non-Luddite approach to protecting privacy. Awesome. Well, thank you, Michael and Ruben, for having us. I mean, it's fantastic to kind of go into a little bit more um, more depth uh, from the Codex meeting. Um, so I think this discussion around data privacy and data ownership, um, there's a lot of excitement around it. Like coming from some of the policies and some of the, the regulation, for example, GDPR in Europe, um, as well as the, the CCPA here in California, people have kind of gotten on the radar that their data is not theirs. Uh, for most folks, this is news. Most folks actually don't think that much about data, so it's a new topic overall. Um, from our point of view, we kind of look at it in a way that, that there's a lot of conversation around data, but what is how can we actually drive it to a better future? So for us, you know, we start from this problem that individuals' personal data is not actually with them. Uh, they're not benefiting from that data. Its distribution is completely unequal, especially around companies and individuals, but even amongst companies, there's only a few companies that dominate all data. Um, but then we kind of come at it from a very, very practical point of view that, that so what? Um, nowadays, you can actually get your copies of your digital data back using GDPR export functions, mm -hmm. which means that you end up with a huge archive of JSON files and, and raw data, which, you know, for a data geek like me is fantastic. Um, right. But at the same time, for most people, it's sort of like, okay, my data is here now. Right. So what do now I do? Now what do I do with this? Yeah. Exactly. And that's where companies like ours come in, that, that we help the individual bring in their data but also organize it in a way that, that they can do something with it. They can visualize some parts of their life, like plot, for example, how their sleep habits um, pertain to their financial decision makings. Like if I sleep poorly, then do I make poorer financial decisions? 
um, because you have all that data. Like you, you have literally, you have all this data, but if you can organize in a meaningful way, you could actually say that, oh, okay, well, here's the argument for um, sleeping well because I'll actually save money. But then also for the future applications that a lot of developers actually struggle with this fact that if you want to write an app that, that actually is very sophisticated in terms of use of data, then the reality is that the data market is a B2B market, that, that you can't write direct-to-consumer data apps. You actually have to get the data from somebody that has the data. Have an incredibly heavy friction onboarding process where there's lots of questions about trust and so on and so forth. So there's also this question that, that um, for developers that want to create the best-in-class applications, then they need a lot of data. And right now, there's no way that they can actually write those direct-to-consumer. So that's the area where if the individual has this data and we can organize it and categorize it in an API, and then we can also allow individual developers or then, of course, companies to write apps that run on the individual's data. So apps that actually don't run um, with the company, but they are installed into a local environment, sort of like a sandbox, uh, which the individual controls. So, so you kind of get into lots of these dimensions, um, but that's kind of where the conversation is also, you know, it, it's also kind of, um, what should I say? It's, it's good to anchor that a lot of these things, the excitement is great, but we need to kind of drill it down into some very practical things. So, so t take us back at the high level. Where is all this data that we all have? Just for, for listeners, I mean, because there's a lot of smart folks out there, but Frankly, we all run around with these powerful supercomputers in our pockets, and we don't necessarily realize, even if somebody even tells us. So where, where, where's this data living, and what, what kind of data is being collected on us or by yeah. us? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so by and large, anything electronic that you use generates data. Um, data comes in the form of you actually inputting it, like you add your photos to Facebook, that, that's data. Uh, you track your, your patterns on Google Maps, that's data. Um, and there's a lots of other data that, that essentially take the inputs from you and then they generate certain types of derived data. Like, for example, um, based on your shopping patterns, somebody can actually kind of make some type of prediction. So that's also data. But the reality is that all of this data, like everything that you do online, um, then, for example, there's a company that has in 15-second intervals where you've been throughout your entire life, digital life, that is. So right. that's the type of stuff that, that yes, it's, it's a gross privacy invasion if you start thinking about it. Mm. Uh, but then the other thing is that you can actually do lots of cool things with that. Like if, if you were be able to have your own copies of that, you could take, for example, um, you could like, for example, a simplistic app like uh, your year in review with the events that you've attended, the photos that you've got, um, even the purchase that you've made. Then like you could have, for example, this yearbook that would be automatically created just taking those types of data points and then plotting it. But the problem is that this data is oftentimes inaccessible. So mm -hmm. you can get it back um, using, for example, different types of downloads. But then it's kind of in this, you know, it's literally in these types of archives that, that you look at and they're, they're completely unusable. So you have to do something with those. So it's like the old days of, of depositions where you would do discovery requests and, and uh, the other side would come with huge boxes full of papers, reams of paper that the answer's in there somewhere, but good luck on finding it. That's right. Uh, That's right. So 
I think you brought up something really interesting here. And it's this tension between kind of the good uses of data and, you know, people won't be able to see my air quotes, but, you know, the bad uses of data. Mm. So how do people now, just kind of the average, let's say the average American, how are they thinking about this data? Because on the one hand, you can do really cool stuff with it, and there's a lot of more innocuous uses of data. And on the other hand, as you said, uh, in a lot of cases, it's probably a gross privacy invasion. So I could see people kind of having the attitude of, you know, I don't care if my data is out there, whatever, it's digital data, it doesn't really harm me, and maybe I get some targeted ads. I could see people thinking, you know, I don't want to help some of these big tech companies generate more revenue from my data and kind of taking that possessive view about it. Or I could see a lot of people falling somewhere in the middle and saying there's some data I don't want out there. There's some data that I don't you know, care if, if Facebook or Google or whatever has it. So do you have a sense of how people in general are thinking about this idea of digital data and digital identity? Yeah, so this is, um, this is a great point, Ruben. And I think essentially for a lot of this then, We've actually done some studies on this where, you know, it, it's in a just controlled studies and, and larger studies as well. One of the interesting facts is that um, it seems that, that individuals are actually willing to use their data, volunteer certain data uh, for a benefit. Uh, so, for example, for a discount or a premium value or, or something of that nature. So benefit to them, not necessarily benefit to like them. a global that's good right. or something. That's right. Um, and then the more long term the benefit is, like a loyalty status or, a, you know, some type of premium membership, then the more willing they become. But when you think about kind of the general um, population, then I think the starting point is that they don't really think about this. That, that, you know, this isn't a topic that, you know, uh, most people are really excited about. Like, generally speaking, um, and I'll contradict myself in a second, but generally speaking, most people don't uh, care about privacy, they don't care about security, and they don't care about data. The thing that, that's interesting is that there's a lot of discussion in this. Like, the typical conversation that we've had in our uh, research uh, is that, that people will say, they will themselves say that, um, I, do, I, I know that people don't care about privacy, but it's really important to me. And that's almost to paraphrase thousands of people that we've talked to, that I know uh -huh. that people don't care about this, but this uh -huh. is important to me. So it's also something that I feel like there's an undercurrent that's almost ready to blow, where people just don't have an option. The reality is that most of these things, they're not choices that you're make, you make. They're, they're binary black and white sets that if you want mm -hmm. to use service, here's how you use it. So you right. don't really have any type of toggle, but it's not just the consumers and the individuals, it's also the companies. That also for the companies, they don't have a, they don't really have much of a middle ground between either essentially not collecting any data and kind of, you know, oftentimes providing a service that sucks because no personalization, or then essentially total ownership of all of the data that they collect. And there's a lot of companies that also kind of fall in this middle ground that, gee, I want to provide a competitive service, but I don't want to keep all of this incredible liability in terms of data that it would be great if there were some other way to just kind of offload. Right. Well, the, the big, big companies who are trying to have um, uh, terabytes of data to do machine learning, obviously, they're, they're more than happy to grab as much data as possible. But a lot of companies, that's not what they're trying to achieve, right? And then, no, you know, like you said, the, the li there's a liability exposure, which there is, which and it's is, also like, and, you know, yeah. 
No, in terms of machine learning, it's also interesting because machine learning is uh, like oftentimes the, the reason for keeping a lot of data is that, that you can essentially do a lot of other things in the future with it that you don't necessarily have the imagination for yet. Um, machine learning is a very, very compute and data intensive field. So it's also an area where you need lots of data. Um, so I was just coming back to your point, Ruben, about the, the value of data. That right. It's also one of those interesting things where um, there's a huge gap between essentially the value of data to individuals themselves and kind of the actual real value. And that's actually something where Paul, Paul kind of looked at some of these different studies and maybe Paul just add a few thoughts about like how people's perception around the value of their data, how that kind of translates to the real world. Yeah, so I think the most uh, valuable and most interesting study has been conducted last summer by Cass Sunstein and another lady from Harvard University. And they issued uh, questionnaires to different individuals, average consumers, asking how much uh, they are willing to pay for some privacy enhancing tools and how much are they valuing different sets of data. And they found something interesting, mainly that uh, on average, people are willing to pay uh, maybe a couple of dollars per month just to make sure that their data and private data is secure, like $5 per month on average. But when it came to the question uh, of value of their personal data, they received uh, extremely high numbers, sometimes over tens of thousands of dollars. So they had to eliminate these extreme exorbitant answers. But on average, it's about 80 or $100 that people are willing to estimate their personal value. Of, uh, or value of personal data. So it was very hard to estimate and calculate what it actually means. This kind of found finding, it is really extreme because when people were asked in previous research about environment and all of these uh, social goods, uh, answers were similar, but not that extreme. So one of the outcomes they're uh, coming up with is that uh, probably this is a hype and people are really trying to understand uh, that data is so much valuable, but they are not getting any benefit from it. Sorry, and can you contextualize that just a little bit more? Um, so my, my understanding was, I, I think I caught that there was the amount that a consumer would be willing to pay for privacy enhancing software was $5 a month. Uh, so one question is, what are we talking in terms of privacy enhancement? Is it just sort of something that nominally protects some data or is it a full you know, kind of firewall? Uh, think, and then the follow-up there is when you say 80 to $100, is that per month or aggregated or how are they? It was uh, uh, calculated that uh, this number is a monthly value. That they would oh, pay. wow. Okay. So that's an enormous delta. And was, it, was it so, I mean, Paul, correct me if I'm wrong, but was it so that when they asked essentially like how much would you be willing to pay to essentially protect right. the loss of your data basically versus then how much would it financially on the market you if you were to lost it was that black it. and white is wow like yeah. how how important do you think you are versus how much you're willing to pay to <laughs> protect right. yourself yeah that's right Fascinating. and it's it's also interesting that when people think about data they kind of attach it very much to their own um their their own self like you know mm -hmm. i get that most people's delta or sorry most people's data correlates with their purchasing power i mean i get mm -hmm. that intellectually but my data no no my data is incredibly valuable and the reality is that that you know most people's data is not that valuable i mean right. because 
it, it's just like, you know, the market for Marcus's data is quite limited. Um, but at the same time, then my notion of, you know, if somebody were to expose, let's say, the data on my Siri and Alexa and my home devices, I mean, that, that would be potentially catastrophic to me. Right. It, it's interesting because what you're pointing out is actually what intuitively it's almost the flip that a person you would intuit that a person would feel their their sense of pri privacy is almost something you couldn't put a price on because you would want to protect it right so the it would you would almost expect the numbers to be flipped but you but that's what's One fascinating about how people think about yeah how people think about this so so i think part of it is like what what you guys are trying to do is actually take a practical, pragmatic approach and say, hey, let's, let's actually get you to see what your data is and like, let's get you so it's in your hands. I think it's you know, this, this question of if somebody looked at a website that's really artfully done with great UI UX and they look at it, they know how to go, they, they say it's fantastic, I totally get it. And then if they looked at the, at the base layer, if they look at the, you know, just the code, it might be gobbledygook depending upon how you read, you know, read the particular language or if you could read, you know, read the language. So it's almost what you seem to be offering as a way for people to visualize their data. Yes, that's step one. So you need to kind of, in order to be able to make use of something you have, you have to have control and you have to understand what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the step, step two is activating that, like actually turning that into a form where it, it travels with you and it becomes part of your being because this is something that, that we've talked about a lot, that what is data? Like what is data to you? But the way that we kind of conceptually think about it is that it's part of you. Like it's part of what makes you, you. And it's something that you can use almost akin to an asset um, as part of your overall wealth when you essentially interact with different service providers. Like I, I, I am showing you, for example, my uh, travel, um, card. This is something that we have in the app. And this is like mm -hmm. an abstraction of what type of traveler am I? Like mm -hmm. my spend on airfare, hotels, uh, taxis, the type of countries I visit, the type of hotels I typically book. Nothing raw, no raw data, no identifiers, nothing like that. But just like, you know, I like staying at these types of hotels and so on and so forth. So it's sort of like this introductory conversation that you would have with somebody that's looking at selling you something, but you skip that and you go right to essentially them saying that, Marcus, I've got the perfect thing for you, that this is the right thing for you. And because I know you're going to like it, you can have 7% off or you can mm -hmm. have this premium value. Like mm -hmm. I'll put you in a suite because I know how much you spend typically outside of COVID on hotels and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. Um, so it's kind of that step, but one of the things that, that our team emphasizes a lot because I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a pragmatic engineer. Like I, I like the idea of making data as easy to use as possible, but they mm -hmm. always push back and say uh, that it's not just about ease. It's also about understanding that mm -hmm. in order for the right. average individual to actually be able to make proper choices and get value from their data. It has to be a longer term process. Like it has to be something that they consciously choose to do. Because if you go to Airbnb.com and you say that, you know, share this and you'll get 7% off, you know, most people are going to do that. It doesn't really matter what share this is. They're just going to do that. But if you can make it something that they, they feel empowered, that I am now, like now it's me in control of making this choice. And now I'm choosing to share this, you know, information about like what type of traveler am I? 
um, then it's also a different type of uh, UX or user experience that we've had in the past. So t talk, to, give, walk an example through like that. Tell the story a little bit more. Like how, so I get, you know, when you come to a site and you want to check it out because you're amazed and they say, hey, before you do that, you know, sign your rights away and click on this button, say you've read privacy provisions. Everybody goes, click, yes, I'm in. We all have experienced that. That's, but you're talking about, so how does that, that longer term, what does that look like yep. for, yeah. So we can kind of anchor it into this, this freight, we're kind of look at kind of what's going on with data overall on the internet. That, that we have uh, Google essentially as a last, um, well, Chrome as a last browser, um, stopping support for third-party cookies in 2022 or um, whatever the exact date was. So one of the things that, that we kind of um, provide as an option is that instead of doing that, um, kind of going through the cookie route, what if you could get this data directly from the individual consumer? What if the individual consumer can come out and they can essentially provide you this data when they go to a website and then you can provide them with personalized service? So in the way that we look at it is it's very simple. Like you can land on a site, you can land on a service provider, on an app, and then if you choose to, then you can show them what type of purchaser, what type of traveler, what type of media enthusiast you are, and you can get the right type of offer right away. So that can mean that you go to airbnb.com or booking.com, and then you essentially volunteer a certain type of profile. And we talk about profiles a lot. And profiles are basically what companies use nowadays. Um, it's basically a string of data in a certain type of format that they've been used to kind of productize on top of raw data. So we just provide that directly from the user. And then essentially the user, from their point of view, they land on a site that's actually tailored to them. Like when they land on the booking site, the, the recommendations, they're relevant, the dates actually match the dates that they're looking for, um, prices kind of come up first in terms of what's in your budget, so on and so forth. That's kind of on, on like um, everyday uh, interactions. But then the thing that we're thinking about is if you can actually use all of this data that, for example, I have, like, for example, uh, information about my spend and my, my contacts and my photos and so on and so forth, you can actually create apps that, that don't exist yet. So you can create apps that, for example, take my purchasing behavior, not, not just essentially my Amex uh, spending, but all of my spending. And they can actually look at, okay, um, based on this data that I have, um, I can be your financial planner, AI bot, that actually sits with you. And because it never leaves you, I mean, the framework that we've created is that in order to, for you to run an application that's this data intensive, it actually has to sit with the customer. Like it, it can't be going anywhere else. Like data just has to stay with them. But if, if that prerequisite is met, then you could create, for example, like, uh, Marcus's financial advisor that, that knows the in and outs of my financial spend and can say that, you know, um, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this, you should get this credit card, this mortgage is right for you. Um, because for a lot of these financial products, and this comes back to what Paul said about my background, I, I worked in FinTech before, a lot of these, um, these financial products are just math. I mean, they're just essentially what type of transactions and profile you have and what fits that. But if you... If you don't have to speculate in terms of the data that you've got, you can actually make these a lot more efficient. And you could even create these types of intelligent <coughs> applications that, that end up actually representing the user um, as opposed to always sitting with um, the service provider.
and so, the service provider doesn't have it until you decide to sign up with them and then right. they 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 have that data and then they can but but for you you've created a way this is for a, a person created a way through Perfina to kind of carry those different parts okay. of your persona along yep. with you so you go live your life you do your things you move around you you continue to collect that and then when you run into somebody some site some entity you want to share that with you have that and they can make a really smart well you're able to bargain better as a consumer and you're able to get something that's more actually tailored to you versus them pitching something that may or may not fit with your needs that's right um, so there's the for the individual's point of view it gives them more power in these conversations it gives them better service at the end of the day but from a macro point of view um, and I should also say that, that we believe that this is happening irrespective of what we're doing. Like we are a small part of this overall shift, but there is certainly a, a leveling of the market that that's happening where data is, um, we believe that data is going to be portable in 10 years either way. Mm -hmm. So then the question is that if data is portable, uh, where does the value get created? And it gets created by the company that can provide <coughs> the best competitive service in every single vertical. And that's maybe one analogy that, that Paul mentioned earlier, that um, when, when we looked at financial services, then there was this um, open banking that started coming out that mm -hmm. banks had to essentially expose an API, uh, which mm -hmm. exposed their customer information so that they could no longer own the customer, so to speak. And what that resulted in was a lot of companies creating incredibly slick UIs and applications on top of this where essentially they did one thing and they did that one thing incredibly well. And oftentimes what they did in the background, it actually wasn't that, that revolutionary. It was the same thing, um, but it was more efficient. It was more modern and it was something that customers actually wanted to use. So if I try to draw that back to data, then if data, if you can bring your data with you and if we can do that on mass kind of as a, as an entire population, then that essentially kind of brings out this, this practice that it's not just going to be those companies that, that have the most data, but it's rather going to be those companies that add the most value in the customer interface that can then thrive the most in this. And definitely it doesn't happen overnight. So from our point of view, right. we kind of look at this in a very practical term that, that now you don't have control over your data. If you get control of it, you can kind of have these interactions. And then for companies that, that for example, now during this, um, this, this COVID crisis that are now going online for the first time, for example, mm -hmm. they, they don't have any data. So mm -hmm. if you could essentially come in and say that, well, this is the type of shopper I am, um, then I mean, they'll be able to do their job a lot better instead right. of essentially going through either giving you a huge form to fill out or then essentially right. uh, just trying to buy that data somewhere else about you. Right. Well, here's a practical question. So where does, if, if, because we generate so much data, like our trillions of brain cells, there's so many, you know, these these bytes out there that we're creating. Where do we actually store the in this in this model? I I know where Google and Amazon and Facebook. I don't know where they, but I know they have massive uh, server farms where they store this data. Where under this model does data get stored? If you, for you, Marcus or you, Paul, where where is your data going to be? I mean, what's the practical? Yep. Uh, alternative, yeah. So we tried to make a very, very strong point that we innovate in the one specific thing that, mm -hmm. that kind of we do differently. 
So in this, essentially, the data storage layer, we want to use and reuse what the consumers are already familiar with. Mm-hmm. So for example, in the US, we've used AWS because mm-hmm. a lot of um, infrastructure is on AWS. And if asked, then most people will generally trust AWS. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, the FBI and the government trusted. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, but the difference in our model is that it's your AWS. So the account and everything that, that kind of where you store your data, it's your name uh, and it's just your stuff. So it's nobody else's stuff. And this right. is kind of, um, this is like a, um, a distributed cloud because every mm-hmm. single one of our users ends up with their own cloud account. So they have their own AWS account with uh, uh, their own S3 bucket where the raw data and our software goes because mm-hmm. the software is um, the, the stuff that actually ends up in your cloud. That's commercial. I mean, that, that's open source software because you have to have essentially all of this properly under your control. Um, but in our model, then, as we were talking about like, um, the, this, the value of data, then the reality is that, that my data is worth a lot to me, but it's mm-hmm. not really worth that much in the market. And the mm-hmm. same is true for most people on the planet. Mm-hmm. So if you take these and you put them in individual AWS accounts, then the, the um, motivator to hack an individual account it's far lower than hacking uh, a right. centralized account where you have 100 million Americans' data, for example. So that's kind of, that's the way mm-hmm. that, that we route mm-hmm. this, that you have your own cloud. And yep. the own cloud is, is, I mean, this can be, and this is something that will evolve over time. Like it could be distributed capacity on, on hardware. It could be something else. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that you have this, this, this instance that is truly yours only. And then essentially from there, we create these profiles. And these profiles, they can then be, um, because they're essentially, they don't have raw data and they're very, very thin, so they're very easy to take with you, then that could exist, for example, in your secure enclave on your phone. But because of these, this incredible enormity of data that we're talking about, even for an individual person, I mean, it is a lot of stuff that they have, then you can't house all of that, for example, on your phone. Like maybe right. in the- but, well, I mean, not in the future either because we're going to be generating more and more all the time. Right. Not going to well, catch up. So given this, so let's go back to this experiment that Paul was talking about uh, a few minutes ago. Um, I guess the first question here is if the average person, uh, American, whoever was the subject of the experiment, if they think that your data is worth 80 to $100 monthly, somewhere in that range, uh, one is, and you might not know the answer to this, but is that accurate? And then the second question is, given this new model, uh, this idea of storing data on AWS, the idea of putting it in the, in the consumer's control, what does that do to the price? Are we moving mm. to where data is worth more every month? Is it, is it somehow uh, bringing down the value of data a month or, or what's happening here to, to, in, the, in an economic sense? So yeah, that's, that's a super interesting thing. I think at the end of the day, um, Data, raw data itself is incredibly fascinating, but it's not really that valuable. You have to do something with it. So data itself is something that, that if you can bring more holistic data together under the same roof, and you can drive and create more holistic models. Like if you think about um, something very basic like spend, like how much you spend uh, a month across various different categories. The data right now sits in different platform. So it sits in your Amex, your diners, your Visa, you know, whatever different kind of credit cards and, and the ways of paying transactions you have. And there's probably about 
10 of those. Mm -hmm. So if you start thinking about them, then none of them actually have a 360 view on what mm -hmm. you're doing. But you can right. do that. You can bring right. all of that in and you can kind of create my complete picture. So from a, an individual value point of view, uh, if we're talking about like the objective value of the data, I can see this centralization and this kind of holistic aspect actually increasing the value quite a lot right away because mm -hmm. it's productized and it's less patchy than right. it was. Much more complete, right? Yeah, that's right. But then the question is essentially, I think this is also a challenge for companies like ours that, that how can we help this data uh, and the value generated from this data increase even more? And I think that there's a lot of different ways. Like one is, for example, that, that if the individual has more control over essentially what they share in terms of like more granularity, more visibility into what they've shared and more kind of, you know, dynamic consent and whatnot. But also mm -hmm. if they have ways of segmenting out data, like for example, um, if we talk about verified data, then verified data is also an interesting thing that if you were to access certain type of data, then if you're able to say that this data is actually true or this data has actually been verified by three parties, not, not taking into account if it's true or not, but these mm -hmm. parties have said that they've seen it and it's correct, then that can also further increase. So I think as an aggregate, if we think all the data in the world and this type of model where you just refine it further, that should increase the value of all of the data. But then there's this aspect that in our model, the relationship is one-to-one. -one. So it's one consumer with one service provider or then a software developer uh, who is basically a service provider in this, this regard. So that relationship, um, that's bringing an economic value that the individual has not yet had directly. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be some type of um, leap first as a kind of we, we see this control kind of fall in the hands of individuals. And then it's going to be more of, um, I should say, more of a curve that, that we essentially get more and more of these tools that are able to, in different use cases, actually bring out the data in the right format. And then also adjust. Because one of the things that, that um, so in our team, we have um, a couple of co-founders, in addition to Paul and I, that, that have ran, for example, different data companies in the past. And data is predominantly B2B. So what we're proposing is basically B2C data, a data market. Um, so one of the things that we're very careful of is focusing too much on the monetization of data. Because uh -huh. this, this concept of data marketplace, um, it's also very dangerous. That if you optimize for the short-term value, then oftentimes you'll have essentially somebody at the end of the month uh, thinking about, like, how do I put food on the table? And if That's an right. sell their genome data in a finite transaction that they can't bring it back, they will do that. And that, that's not a future that we want to see. So it's also finding these balances, like for different types of use cases, what data is actually prudent and what data is actually needed. Uh, like for example, um, in different type of uh, checkout process, then yes, you need a home address, but do you need the full identity, for example? Mm -hmm, right. Uh, do you need a social? You don't, um, and so on and so forth. So it's also kind of these checks and balances that, that need to go hand in hand with um, the, the value. And then the value has to be, we have to kind of think about it very much from like the longest term point of view yep. possible. That it's not just about what they get now, but it's also the value of actually knowing where everything is. Yeah, I think that's really, really important, Marcus. And thanks for bringing that up because that is one of those uh, on the other end of the, of the spectrum uh, 
um, not yet widely debated, but very serious potential consequences of this, the, the commodification of data. Um, but, you know, like the genome exp uh, example, like talk through, you, you know, one, one of these things where it's the equivalent of, you know, uh, a person can choose to sell an organ, but if you sell your kidney, you know, that's, you, you have done that one, one time and you don't get that back. The, the, and then obviously if you do it because you need money, and you're poor, it's a very different thing. So I think these, the, the kind of ethical and kind of the, the societal issues that you raise, I think those are really important. How do you, if it is, clearly you don't feel it's, um, it's a zero sum game. You, you feel like there is a way to manage this in a way that doesn't uh, just open it up to a free and exploitative data marketplace. Like how, how does, thinking of from the ethicist perspective kind of stepping mm -hmm. back and saying okay you know i'm gonna i'm gonna play um the grand regulator of these markets and i'm thinking of, of how to protect the those who don't have the sophistication and the wherewithal and the experience in data markets yeah and this how, do, is how do you of, how do you embrace that yeah how do you deal with that one so we have to be very conscious of the fact that that it's not one Silicon Valley company that, that should set these uh, for yeah. all perpetuity. So this yeah. has to be something that we do openly. Like we've been very engaged in the, um, the California Consumer Protection Act and kind of that entire public mm -hmm. hearing and commentary process. Like mm -hmm. we, we've literally been cataloging different types of views that industry participants bring and kind of being very engaged in discussing with them about like how a consumer protections agency thinks about like what is the right amount of data to share in, for example, uh, an mm -hmm. e-commerce marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, so we, there are principles that are already guiding this. Like there's, mm -hmm. for example, this principle of data minimization, and mm -hmm. then there's all of these kind of technical models that are coming, for example, like um, self-canceling noise and differential privacy that, that you can't actually trace data back to its origin. Um, mm. No less that it's actually as as valuable, if not even more valuable, um, mm -hmm. because of that. But we look at it as um, one of the greatest things in kind of open collaboration, and that's the area where we've seen an incredible um, pull from the developer market. That we've already got over ten thousand software developers that have engaged with us, and they started essentially looking at that. You know, this is something that they want to invest in. They want to build their own apps. They want to mm -hmm. work with us whatnot but that's also something where we see that it's not just technology it's also then different um you know regulators different um privacy uh proponents and so on and so mm -hmm. forth where we have to find this balance mm -hmm. um actually paul that's something like uh do you want to just just share briefly about this um mm -hmm. this kind of proposal this legal framework that we put together with a couple of mm -hmm. our partners and just Talk about that a little bit because I know that that's also something that we very much invited a conversation uh, with that start. Yeah. Sure. So I think to the point of uh, what can we do to sell uh, to help people not to make uh, fatal decisions regarding the uh, data and the access to their personal data. So yeah. We're thinking that uh, probably uh, since. Uh, only Marcus and few of us are so tech savvy and are excited about data. Most of the individuals do not really care. Right? Uh -huh. so we need to figure out what are the possible defaults that would be welfare enhancing and help help people uh, make most out of this personal data that they 
suddenly have in their own control. So setting mm -hmm. default system obviously uh, in, implies many ethical, moral, transparency related issues. And mm -hmm. as Marcus mentioned, we are not thinking about it as uh, within the domain of one single actor in this whole ecosystem. So more debate, more cooperation, more collaboration among different stakeholders would mm -hmm. make obviously more sense trying to figure out what is uh, this uh, more desirable and uh, also more user-friendly, uh, user-centric perspective. Mm. I think one, then, of the, one of the mm. interesting things that we found is that when we kind of went into conversations with, for example, even, even large companies, and we set out like some principles, like you know, users are always in control and user consents to everything and user knows what's going on, then I mean, all of the companies even, they, they looked at it as a huge, you know, as a huge advantage that, that kind of they can actually interact in a very transparent way where the user actually buys into what they're actually doing. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's kind of an interesting flip side to Mike's question, I think. So the idea of selling a kidney uh, is very, very different from selling data because a, a kidney is highly rivalrous. Right. So if I sell somebody a kidney, if I care what happens to that kidney, I'm not as worried that who I sell it to can go in and sell it while also keeping for themselves. And, you know, a kidney is not easily replicatable in the way that data is. Mm -hmm. So there's some question about what mm -hmm. happens when you aggregate this data and you have it, you know, it's safe and sound on your AWS instance. Once it gets out in the world, you lose some amount of control, or at least that's the intuition. So how, how are you thinking about uh, well, I guess, are you thinking about that as a problem? And how are you thinking about a, a solution to that potential problem? Yep. And that, that's absolutely correct. Um, so the way that we think about it is that, that we also set, um, we set defaults in terms of rights, like the rights that the individuals grant, but we mm -hmm. also set defaults in terms of what are the technical ways that you access this data. So starting off, for example... Sorry, you being the, the user or the business you, or who... You being essentially whoever receives this data. Just anybody. Uh, whoever, okay. actually, yes. So business, developer, whomever. Yeah. Um, starting off kind of with these data profiles, the way that we, we kind of um, create this is when the user actually creates this aggregate profile of their data, let's say my travel profile, what we technically do is we copy it in the user's own cloud. So it doesn't leave anywhere. And then mm -hmm. essentially when they share access, so I consent to Airbnb accessing it once, then Airbnb can access an endpoint, which is with me, and then they can read this jumbled string of stuff um, that essentially for them, it makes sense because they can now load the website in a certain type of way, but they can't actually retrace it to where it came from. Like, yes, they can take this, this uh, string and they can say that, you know, this guy that was on my, my website with this IP address, then, you know, here's certain type of things. But then it kind of goes with the data minimization that what we put in that string overall, then it has to be essentially something that, that um, it has to be something less sensitive that even if something were to happen, um, let's say reproduction of that, that data, um, then essentially it wouldn't be as sensitive as the underlying data. But this is where we encourage these, um, these kind of what we call local data apps. So in that model where you're sharing something with the outside world, there's always gonna be a risk. Like you can encrypt it, you can have a key pair and somebody can read it. But at the end of the day, people are smart. If they're motivated enough, they can figure out a way that, that they can you know, have some malicious intent and, and get away with it. 
Um, so the local data app is this concept that, that you have your data in your cloud, and then I write a piece of software, and then I install it in your cloud. And then that, that piece of software, it's just like installing a local, uh, it's downloading and installing something locally that actually isn't connected to the rest of the world. So it just stays there. And then like everything else in your cloud, if you want to send information, including that app sharing information, then you have to consent to it separately. So you could have that app that, that is incredibly data intensive, but actually it runs on this principle that nothing ever leaves your cloud or your device or whatever it is in the future. So there's different layers to this. Um, there's different types of things that, that we've done. For example, when you share a certain type of factual information, like let's say a bank statement, because your banker wants to see a bank statement for approving a loan, then we could watermark it. Like we can say that, that you know, Paul shared this with bank X on this date for this transaction. And if used outside of this, it is um, an infringement of the rights that he granted, whatever. So you can, you can kind of um, disincentivize them. Like, for example, one of my examples that I, I previously used was how lots of folks at Wells Fargo ended up with so many accounts. So right. these, things, these things, they happen. But if essentially the account creation progress, process, it was very specifically written so that I am consenting to the creation of one account on this day, and it was very specific just for one interaction, yeah. then, I mean, yes, it could still happen. But at the same time, as you start tracing it back, then you can say that, okay, it was clearly malicious, that it was clearly not, not authorized use. So the way that we're kind of approaching this bigger picture-wise is just through value, that as we aggregate these data sets, uh, we're essentially, we're enforcing a couple of principle, uh, principles. One is that user always has control and user always has, uh, has to consent to what they're doing. But then on the flip side, uh, you can actually get richer data than you could ever get otherwise because you can go essentially, you can, you can create apps that, that use all of this, this richness that the individual has. But it's kind of this trade-off at the start and especially kind of with that, that profile example, then that's also where you have to accept that you're not getting the raw data, but you are getting a profile that actually represents a far more holistic view into, for example, the user's travel habits that you could get otherwise. I mean, you would have to put an incredible amount of effort into doing this. So there's well, it's it's the it's it comes from their real data. That's, that's right. So you're. I mean, I think that's that's the assurance you can have. It's not it's not modeled or estimated or doesn't represent it. It's not your demographic. It's your data. It's just you don't you, what parts of it uh, that you choose to share what the what the end user gets to gets to look at in an integrated form. It's also interesting in a way that from a, a data point of view, then this is almost this is flipping the script on its head because mm -hmm. we're we're so used to kind of having data in these huge centralized databases where we just right. plug in everything in one place and then we analyze it top down. So this is kind of starting the conversation with that. What if I can give you all of this rich data on me? I'll abstract it so that you go, don't get raw data points. But you're not getting millions of consumers. You're just getting me. You're just getting my data. And then essentially, from uh, this is the, the developer challenge and then the, the company challenge, that right. what type of value can you create just for me? Um, and I, I'm, not, I'm not talking hyper-personalization because I'm not a huge fan of that, but rather that that you know, could you have websites that are this dynamic that they can actually interact on individuals kind of on a, 
you know, on a, on a, almost like a first name basis, because you're kind of coming in there and you're having this, this handshake, um, quite, quite, um, directly, but it is also in the, in, in the data community, it is new because oftentimes you start with this, this aspect that you have lots of data and you start mining it, you start mining it for patterns and so on and so forth. But in our model, you start with individual data sets that are very holistic, but they are still individual. And then you might have in the future, you might have tens of millions of these individual data sets, um, but you're not going to, I mean, the, the data science around this is going to be different because you're going to be modeling them from an individual level first and then from there upward as opposed to top down. And it's something that, that um, we're really excited about too, because it also kind of unlocks lots of opportunities, but it is new. And that's something that, that as we're looking at this, then there's so many different layers and it's the aspect of data that you can do. Um, and that's why I think this, this open collaboration and this kind of community around it, that's so fundamentally important that it's not going to be a company like ours. I mean, um, we, we might, I mean, we certainly have a brilliant team, but at the end of the day, we're only so many. And then other perspectives and other kind of ways of looking at this problem and solving it, those are going to be absolutely crucial. And that's why I think that there's also many companies that are approaching this field as, a, as an open source initiative, as opposed to like, um, you know, let's create a new big black box that represents, or sorry, that replaces the old black box that we have. So we do need those types of more novel ways of um, solving the problem that are a little bit more fundamental um, and a little bit more long-term. It, it sounds like you're saying that the, the old way that we were approaching the data markers, or at least in your, in your view, is that we had kind of this huge mess of data and there was all sorts of data that isn't necessarily relevant to the company that's receiving the data. Mm -hmm. And there, to me, that implies that there's you know, core data that a company wants, but then there's this noise and there's a ton of value in the noise because that's what companies use to sell. Other companies use that to make connections. Um, but what you're doing is saying, let's strip away the noise and let's send better versions of just the core data that each company cares about. Mm. So, so I think that's, that's quite accurate um, in that sense that, that if you think about it from a lifetime point of view, um, then that, that, that's, probably, um, that's probably accurate. But if you think about it from an individual transaction point of view, like when you, when you go to Nike.com to buy a shoe, then mm -hmm. you know, there's only so much data that Nike.com needs to shell, sell you the shoe. Right, right. And that's kind of where we've had a huge overreach that, that they've ended up with all of the data that they can so that they can do multiple different things. But that's something that, that we also saw in financial services that you end up with companies that do everything as opposed to just doing the things that they're actually right. good mm -hmm. at. Right. So you're going to set up these, these traveler uh, uh, pathways and these, these uh, apparel buying pathways or you, how, the user profiles that allow for a much more limited exchange, but across a range, a whole wide range of folks who are interested in that kind of data. Is that essentially like when you're talking about commercial, commercializing this, like, yeah, practically speaking, millions of users who all, they all have their individual data. How do you then turn that structure essentially? How do you structure it in, in the way that would allow for this to kind of be interacted with in a way that a market could deal with? Yeah, yeah. So the individuals they they get their raw data in, and then we have to make sense of that raw data. So we have to right. map it. 
So we have to essentially just put it into categories like your LinkedIn connections and your Facebook connections. They're all right. just people. So we have to kind right. of, you know, put them in the same bucket, so to speak. And then from there, we essentially create these um, different types of standard profiles. So right. the standard profiles, you're absolutely right. Then they're essentially, they're open standards. So we have, I think, 26 on our GitHub that we productize based on some pilots. Um, and then there's some subsets within those, like within e-commerce, there's going to be different types of industry subsets and so on. And those uh -huh. are just, I mean, those are just basically like, um, uh, cookie cutters that, that you can, right. you can like, you can, as a developer, you can use different types of data sets or profiles. You can create your own, but what we want is kind of this interoperability and this universality yeah. that, that, you know, a travel profile is something that, you know, consists of these 15 attributes and, and that's it. And yeah. then not just the attributes, but also this permission that that's a one-time read without identity, for example. Yeah. Um, so that's what we're doing. And then essentially that's what great. we're doing with the, the developers is as we have these out and as we have these profiles and as we have the, the API um, that essentially returns, based, returns data based on this data model, then the developers are coming to us and saying that I'm building this intelligent financial advisor um, and this is how it's going to look. And then right. that's the area where we get to be blown away because we're thinking about something and then somebody comes in and says that, um, yeah. like there was one guy that came in and says that, you know, why don't we take, for example, local activity, like what you do in your neighborhood. And then essentially you can aggregate that into a profile and then somebody can create like this hyper local, um, right. like almost like Groupon style app, which essentially just kind of bases it, it's kind of functions on the things that you're looking for in your neighborhood. So that's kind of the area right. where, um, you know, we, we don't, it's, it's very gratifying that we don't have to come up with all the answers. Yeah. Brilliant people that come up and says that, you know, that's awesome. How about we do this? And yeah. I think that that's kind of where this, um, you know, this will go even further. Um, from our point of view, then the thing that, that we're trying to help the developers with is just kind of um, giving them more and more tools so that they can mock these apps up quickly. Right. They can test right. them out in the sandbox and then they can also test them out with, um, synthetic data so data that behaves the same way but it's actually yeah. not real um yeah. before then we allow them to you know uh, in the future actually sell these apps to the consumers because yeah. at the end of the day um we see this as a as a new marketplace that uh, data has i mean data has been a b2b market to now um but if you can actually create portable data then that also means that that developers could actually create direct to consumer data apps and that's right. something where, you know, the, the use case could be super simple. And this goes back to our, our earlier conversations that a lot of times when thinking about data, then people say, people um, without like a huge um, expertise or kind of um, commitment to data, they will say that, you know, um, generally people don't, don't care about data or privacy, but it would be really interesting to me to see, for example, which friends I interact with um, on which days of the year, for example. So yeah. It seems like everybody almost um, to a fault has some type of use case already yeah. in mind. And yeah. that's something that, that if we can really catalyze that, that yeah. you can actually get those types of apps that, that fit yeah. what you're looking for, then that would be really cool. Really cool. Well, I just thought, yeah. like, a, like more than, I think you characterize it as a new marketplace, um, but this almost seems to be going a step beyond. I mean, this is it is closer to a reconceptualization of the data marketplaces, places, plural. Um, so, given that, and maybe I'll, I'll ask Paul, uh, just as a thought experiment, 
what happens if you take the experience, the, uh, the study that you mentioned and run it now, given this new, uh, this new data marketplace model. So what would it take, uh, this kind of go into the theoretical here for somebody to open up their AWS instance to any company that wants to, uh, make that request for very specific data. Do you have some idea of what it would cost to have sort of that open access and these companies, they don't get the noise, right? So they can't, uh, take that extra data and, and draw extra conclusions out and do sort of the creepy stuff that companies do. But just in terms of better data, but targeted data, what do you think it would cost? I think the cost element is, um, is going to be reconsidered because data will not be seen as a one-time uh, used asset. So instead mm -hmm. of this uh, thing that we can give away and you know lose control of it, uh, we will have a, some kind of long-term relationship with personal data. And we also sometimes talk about uh, personal information, personal data within Prefina context as new form of luxury. So people don't really understand that it, that it exists. But uh, if we can actually make it not as an object that we are selling or giving away, but uh, using as a tool to enrich our lives, to make our lives more convenient, mm. easy, uh, so things will probably change. Where do you think, because uh, no, this has been a super fascinating conversation and uh, we're coming up at the top of the hour, but where do you think, because things move so fast, I'm not going to go out 20, 30, 40 years, 50 years, where do you think we are in five years in this, thinking what you're trying to do, but also just in general where the, the trends are? We've, we've seen the initial big movements in you know, GDPR and uh, the California Privacy Act. Uh, that's just the beginning. Where, where do you think this goes and what, what does the future look like for your average person in five years? We can go out 10 years if that's too short a window. I mean, what, what does the world look like or feel like, or how do you experience it? I think, first of all, it, it's like when you take a long enough time horizon, then this almost becomes like a, um, a simple question. Like if we think 10 years from now, is it realistic that only a few companies will dominate all data in the world? Then mm -hmm. that, that seems almost unlikely. So mm -hmm. when you start from essentially thinking about broad strokes, then mm -hmm. there's a, actually there's a lot of things that we haven't really touched on that we look at this from um, a technology point of view that as we have more data locally and as we require more and more personalized service and more immediate processing of this data, then it actually mm -hmm. doesn't make sense to send it back and forth. I mean, it right. should just run there because it, it's not going to, from a latency and a bandwidth and even a performance point of view, it's just not going to make sense to be waiting mm -hmm. on a server to be available. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we'll see portable data. But it will be almost something that, that in 10 years, people just, you know, they accept that it's part of their identity. It's part of mm -hmm. their, their overall being. And they'll also essentially expect like a two-step higher um, service level than what they have currently. Because currently, they go into various different um, services and they're not really getting served properly. Like people don't really know um, what type of things they're looking out for. So the overall quality of, let's say, service providers will be far higher, but it will also be far more specialized because right now you have a lot of this, this dominance, but that, that's not going to exist in the same way. It's going to be much more about 
vertically integrated services that actually add the most value that are more consumer facing. I think overall we'll see this, this almost like rebalancing more toward the consumer and consumer value. Um, this happened in fintech. I mean, if you look at from a policy side, uh, the European Commission and Union are clearly pushing forward kind of on the, the portable data overall. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, if we look at it from a very practical point of view, then right now where we are is that that GDPR has created like, um, you know, a pain in the ass internet with pop-ups and consent this and consent that. So we have to go beyond that. We have to mm -hmm. go to something that, that actually looks at this as an opportunity. But also then we have to recognize that 10 years from now, um, it's, it's impossible for us to imagine those apps now. Like if we imagine the early use cases that we talked about here, um, similar to how, for example, the first mobile phone apps work, then those were just, I mean, the first mobile apps, they, they just weren't good. I mean, they were just very, yeah. very initial. So there is also this patience that, that the first wave of things, that's not gonna be the colossal wave. It's going to be rather something that's incrementally better, but it will be followed by something that's going to be fundamentally different. And that's something that we look at as uh, incredibly exciting, um, but also really inevitable that, that in order for us to have these types of apps and these types of services that, that we've all imagined, then something needs to change. And it's clear that data is, it, it's not getting any less valuable. So it needs to start becoming something that that's more at the heart actually serving customers and do you think that in addition to serving customers and being more easier smoother all the things that people seem to want uh, from a power perspective from knowledge is power data is knowledge is it more balanced towards the individual to the consumer in the future in five ten years is that or is it this struggle about you know who controls data and whether it's the whether it's the five big global tech companies who right now or some other some other future i mean does this your future mean more equitable power distribution with between I think individuals and consumers and yeah i think it does um, but i think it also becomes something like right now we're talking about data in 10 years we mm -hmm. won't be like data mm -hmm. will still be interesting for a data geek like me but it's mm -hmm. not going to be it's not going to be like um, the consumer discussion about where my data is. It's just going to be mm -hmm. a different status quo um, where essentially apps just, just behave differently, meaning that, mm -hmm. that they use data more efficiently than before. The data is direct. The relationship between data and the app is direct. Um, mm -hmm. It's based on dynamic consent where it's very mm -hmm. clear what the user has consented to. And there's defaults and there's open standards and whatnot. But right. at the same time, um, it's not going to be a discussion topic. I mean, in terms mm -hmm. of fintech, uh, for example, or then other, other types of industries before, then they have to gravitate towards something very practical. And at the end of the day, that's what the customer actually gets out of it. So with data, then we're going to see different types of use cases and services that are 10 times better than what we have. But it's not going to be a data discussion. Like the data discussion is going to be part of it. But overall, it's going to be all about the use case. It's going to be all about like, how I have this virtual assistant that can find me my best running shoe at the best price uh, a week before I actually need it. Something super simple, but that would save right. me, you know, a couple of hours every, every couple of right. months. And that would be fantastic. Right. Well, Marcus, Paul, really super interesting. Loved having the opportunity to dive deep with you. Uh, really excited to see where this goes, but also just to be, um, watching the progress and seeing seeing uh 
you know, as this evolves, you're in the early stages, but as this evolves, you know, what it's going to mean. I think we're talking about a very different and much better uh, possible future. So thanks for, thanks for coming on the, on the pod. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And this, is, this is more than just uh, amazing work. This is important work. So it's always, mm-hmm. you know, extra yeah. special to get to talk to people who are doing things that, you know, are very close to Mike and my own heart. So that's right. really, really incredible that. what you're doing. That's right. Thank All right, Del. So- well, we we'll keep keep uh, keep in touch and keep keep a, a lookout for your progress and and look forward to connecting again in the future. Yeah. No. Likewise. No. Thank you so much for the chat. I mean, this is there. There's obviously so many different dimensions, so it's always hard yeah. to you know boil it no, down. No, absolutely. I think we're well, this is just one piece of a long and really interesting conversation. More to come. Sure. Awesome. All right, y'all. All right. Thanks. Thank you both. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Good day. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you, get your thoughts and feedback about the issues raised in the podcast and your ideas on where we should go next. Our Data is a podcast brought to you by the Blockchain Group and the Tech for Good project of Stanford's Codex Center for Legal Informatics. Thanks to the co-chairs of the Codex Blockchain Group, Tony Lai and Kushagra Srivastava and Codex Executive Director Roland Vogel. And special thanks to our producer, co-host and jack of every trade, Ruben Youngbaum. I'm Michael Schmitz.